Well, good morning once again, everyone. Um, my name is John Looney. I'm the associate pastor here. John Amstutz is away this week, and so I get to come and open the Word of God together with you this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Colossians. So if you want to um, grab your Bible or your mobile device and turn there, uh, you, can, you can begin uh, to make your way there. But I want to start with asking you a question this morning. How many of you have ever tried to take a shortcut? We love taking shortcuts, right? We take shortcuts in all kinds of things, or at least we try to. And uh, sometimes it doesn't turn out so well, whether you have bought a lotto ticket, hoping that that's your answer to financial freedom, or maybe you have even done something like take a job that you knew you wouldn't like because it offered more money, and then you get into it and it's just a, it's just a downer, it's tough. We do all kinds of things. In fact, one of the biggest this is a, a billions and billions of dollars market in the United States is the diet industry, health and wellness, because we want all kinds of quick results for, uh, for losing weight, right? And we know, we know that if you eat vegetables, if you eat fruit, and you eat lean meats, and you exercise, that you will lose weight, Right? Now, I know this, I may or may not have a Weight Watchers account that goes unused. <laughs> so we, we, we know this truth, but we love all of these different systems to get quicker results. And so, because of that, we have things like Paleo, Juicing, South Beach, The Zone, Adkins, Nutrisystem, on and on and on it goes, right? Because we are a culture who likes quick results. And so here in the book of Colossians, they were struggling with that. They were struggling with that idea of taking the shortcut. In fact, that is a really popular storyline for a lot of movies and TVs of people trying to take the shortcut and it not working out so well. In fact, uh, See, uh, as I read this storyline, see if this sounds familiar in anything that you have seen on, uh, on t in TV or on the movies. So all the regular characters are on a road trip or some other quest together. And one character suggests they take a shortcut. Sure, they may not have, uh, have it on a map, but he knows the route like the back of his hand. Besides, it'll shave a few hours off the trip. It'll be all around more interesting than the boring old interstate. So persuaded, the other characters agree to take the shortcut. Hilarity ensues. All manner of deadly serious horrors beset them. As soon as they leave the beaten path, they get lost. The car breaks down. The shortcut takes them to a town with a dark secret. You've seen a show like that, right? If the proposed shortcut is described beforehand as the scenic route, then you know it's doomed from the start, right? This is a very familiar storyline in movies and TV. In fact, some of the classic comedies like National Lampoon's Vacation and Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, I mean, some of those old ones, uh, they, they, they like invented this, this, this type of genre of comedy. So we know this well. And, and, and they make movies like that even now because we can identify with them. Because we like to take shortcuts. We like to try to take the fast way out. 
And so Paul is addressing this to the Colossians. Now, there's a guy named Epaphras who had worked with Paul, and he was the guy who went to the city of Colossae to help establish the church. And so Epaphras, he writes to Paul while Paul's in prison. And he says, we're, we're seeing new believers, but we have some issues. We've got some problems in the church. And so he describes to Paul two uh, things that are happening. One is an external threat. There's an external threat that, that the Colossian Christians were taking on the pagan gods and the religious beliefs of their neighbors. And so it was causing confusion. It was causing all kinds of problems in the church. And so there was this external threat for the new believers conforming to these kinds of practices. But there was also an internal threat that he uh, described to Paul. He said, we're having trouble with people buying into philosophies and religious tradition that they're bringing into the gospel that they're bringing into informing their faith. It has nothing to do with the gospel, but it's this, the prevailing philosophies of the day were impacting the way they viewed Christ. And so Epaphras writes, he, recognizing the significance of this danger, he writes to Paul. And so Paul writes this letter back to encourage and challenge the Colossian church. So these... These teachers, these people who were teaching philosophies and religious tradition, they were offering a quick fix. They were offering a shortcut to people's faith. And they were, they were offering things, they were, they were promising that, that people could have insight, deeper insight into spiritual power. That they could have a greater fullness of God. That they could have deeper freedom, that they could have a, a knowledge of who God is. Now, those all sound like great things, right? Those are all good things. We want freedom. We want fullness uh, in God. We, we want to know Him better. But they were offering those things to be better than the gospel. They were offering something in addition to the gospel. And that can sound pretty appealing, but like our little storyline, it is fraught with deadly, serious horrors along the way. R.C. Lucas, a theologian, he describes it this way. He says, the Colossians had shifted away from the hope of the gospel by seeking something more than Christ crucified as the sufficient foundation for their soul's confidence. So they had sought something more than Christ to be was sufficient for them in their faith. Now, we would never do that, right? We would never do that because it's about Jesus, right? But listen to how Paul starts his letter back to the Colossians. Look in verse, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers. These are not the, the apostate sinners. These are not the enemies of the church. He's addressing the saints in the church. He's saying we're all susceptible to this shift that can take place away from the gospel. 
And so now he's going to reiterate the fullness of Christ and give us some clues as to how we can not make that shift away from the gospel. This is what the Colossians were dealing with, that shift that happens. How does that shift take place? From believers and being, being found in Christ to shifting away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at a couple things here that Paul describes. So one, it happens we, when we shift away from the gospel when we replace God. When we replace God with something else. Now, some of the Colossians, they had a faulty perspective of who God is. To really understand the gospel, you have to first know who God is. They had a faulty perspective. We replace God when we have a faulty perspective of who he is in our lives. So Paul starts this letter, this encouragement, by reiterating to them who Christ is. So listen to what he says, in starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. This is what he says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now listen to this. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross that is jesus preeminent above all things all things finding their meaning in him and reconciling all things through the work of the cross back to god it's amazing it's the gospel that's the good news this is a huge statement that paul is making about jesus defining who he is saying that he is the beginning and the end he's the supreme and he's sufficient. Jesus is enough. This is the gospel right here. That God is reconciling man back to himself by Christ's work on the cross. For all people to be fully cleansed once and for all. That's our hope. That's our hope. Isn't that awesome? That's our hope in Christ. And that's enough. But in Colossae... They were adding something to that. They were literally replacing God by inserting something of themselves. And when we do this, when we insert ourselves into the gospel scenario, it literally undercuts the work that Jesus does as sufficient. He's not sufficient for us anymore. There's this progression that can take place where we shift away from that truth and that hope of who Christ is and we can lean on ourselves. In fact, we can even lose the gospel altogether. See, many of us, sorry about that. There we go. Many of us, when we accepted Christ, think about when you accepted Christ. 
It was awesome, wasn't it? It was exciting. It was fresh. It was new. You submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You said, I surrender my life to you. Everything I am, let it be redefined by you, Lord God. And it was this, this, this fresh outpouring of the Lord into your life, and it was incredible. See, all of us experience that when we accept Christ. This, it changes our perspective. It changes everything. But as we, as we live life, as we go through, pretty soon, instead of the gospel continuing to be accepted and experienced as fresh and new, it becomes assumed. It becomes something that we assume. It becomes old or stale. It becomes that thing that we, we used to experience and we lean back on that past experience with God, but it's not fresh and new. We come to church and we worship and we go through the motions but it's not alive in us. The truth of the gospel that Jesus reconciled you out of your sin and put you back into relationship with the God of the creation, it's not life-changing anymore. It becomes something that's assumed. And then when we do that, we lose touch with who Christ is in us, enough, sufficient, supreme. And we have to start adding little bits in. The Colossian church was adding in some philosophy. They were adding in some tradition. They were adding some things in because they didn't find their all, their supremacy of Christ in their life. They assumed a gospel that was part Jesus and part themselves that they made up. When we, when we do that, it confuses the gospel, and like I said, it undercuts it, and the result is the gospel is lost. It doesn't transform us anymore, and so it doesn't transform people through us. The whole, see, the whole role of the gospel working in us is to not only transform us, but is to transform other people through us. And so there's this shift, this, this slide that can take place that has deadly serious horrors at the end of it. And so Paul, is he's, he's writing this letter to the Colossians saying, look, you've got to find, you've got to start with your foundation. You've got you to come back to Jesus as your all. And he says the same thing for us. The gospel has to be preeminent in our life, in Christ Jesus. But we struggle with that. We struggle with that today, even in our own version of Christianity we, we try to add things in, and by adding in something of ourselves, we, we end up replacing God. See, Jesus plus my moral behavior doesn't equal salvation. It equals confusion of the gospel. Because I'm inserting something into what he's already done for me. Jesus plus my self-enlightenment doesn't equal salvation. Jesus plus legalism, Jesus plus my political view, Jesus plus my social activism, Jesus plus anything else is a confusion of the gospel. Christ did it once and for all. Hallelujah. He is sufficient for us. And yet sometimes we slide from that. It doesn't, it doesn't have that same life-altering truth in our lives and so we start to fill in the gaps with stuff that we think needs to be part. 
And the gospel isn't good news anymore. It's our own trumped-up version of our idea of I'm now okay with God because I can do these things and I can be part of this thing. So this, this, shuttle, this subtle shift, it, it happens for all of those reasons and for a whole bunch more. But it can happen so easily. Colossians is not the only uh, isolated incident of this. This is all through the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 25, it says, For although they knew God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. See, they knew the truth of God, but they exchanged it for a lie. How does that happen? How do you know the truth of God, this life-changing truth, and then exchange it for a lie? It's this shift that can take place, and it's subtle as we add in little bits of ourselves, little bits of, of philosophy, little bits of the prevailing culture, and let that impact our perspective of God. No, God can speak for himself. God can reveal himself to us. So back to Colossians. It wasn't, it wasn't that the Colossians were scrapping the gospel altogether. It was that this exciting new teaching wasn't enough. They were, had, they had, were adding something into it. And by doing that, they were replacing God. So secondly, so first we, we replace God when we shift from gospel when we replace God. Second, we shift, we can make a shift from the gospel when we try to become God. Now that sounds like a stretch right off the bat, right? Like probably you're probably not rolling in here declaring, I'm God. But it's not such a far step when you start to shift and you make that progression away from the gospel and you start inserting yourself into the situation that you really take on the role of being God for yourself. It's not really about the truth of what God says anymore. It's about what you manufacture, what you create. It's really the, that was the original sin, right? With Adam and Eve. They were offered this promise that they can be like God. They can have all knowledge like God has. They literally like fell into, I can be God. I don't need him anymore. This is called a God complex, by the way. When people think that they can make it on their own, they can do it without God, they can be their own solution. There's a movie uh, from 1993. It's an old film. And I haven't even seen the whole film, so I can't recommend it to you. But it's a movie called Malice. And uh, I found this clip, and it's uh, Alec Baldwin and Nicole Kidman when they're young. And, uh, and this is amazing. Let me just, I'm going to show you this clip. Let me set this up a little bit for you. So this, he is a doctor, and he turns out to be a real psycho, but he's a doctor, and uh, he's, a, he's operating on a woman who um, he says if he leaves her ovary, that it's, she, she could suffer, she could die. She could die from it. And he had diagnosed that there was an issue going on, and so he decides in the middle of operating that he's going to remove the ovary. Against all of the other doctor's advice, he takes that decision on his own, and he removes her ovary, which later they found there was nothing wrong with it. And so he 
she, she's sterile now because of the choice that he makes. And so he has to go before the medical board and answer for those decisions that he made. And this is his response. Take a look. Oh, I think now you're vastly overstating. Is that why you didn't give Dr. Hill the job? There were a number of other factors. Is that why you removed a healthy ovary without any scientific diagnosis? Don't you address my client, Mr. Riley. Do you have a God complex? This is not acceptable. No, no, let him address me. Jed? No, no, it's about time I got to give some answers here. Stop typing. This is off the record. The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. And this sideshow is over. Yikes, right? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Look out! Wow, you probably have never given that speech in your life, right? <laughs> I certainly hope not. But we can really easily set ourselves up in our little kingdom to be the God of our world, can't we? It is not that difficult for us to make a shift away from the gospel to set ourselves up as God. We try to do it by our own ingenuity, our own service, our own morality, our own philosophies. Have you ever known somebody that creates their own reality, that creates their own spirituality? I, I've, I've come across a few people like that, and they're immersed in this world that they've created, and it's something completely different than the gospel. It's the ultimate demise of that shift that can take place. Look at the next few verses here in Colossians, verse 21 and 22. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. It's all about him. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can add. It's not about who we can become. It's about what Christ has already done. 
He presents us holy and blameless before the Father when we are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That is the gospel to us. And Paul draws this clear line of distinction from our former alienation to our current reconciliation with God as being through Christ Jesus. Anything else crumbles the gospel. It takes the Jesus out of the gospel and it replaces it with us inserting ourselves in. And so Paul now, you look throughout, throughout Paul's writings, one of the things that he consistently tries to do is link believers with Christ. And so he uses terms like rooted, built up, established in Christ. He talks about circumcision of the flesh. He talks about us being buried with, with Christ our transgressions, our sins are buried with Christ and we're, raw, we're raised to life with Christ. Everything he communicates is us linking with Christ because outside of that, the gospel crumbles. What we do this morning in worship, coming to the Lord's table and celebrating what he's done for us is linking with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's putting ourselves again under his lordship to say, Lord Jesus, it's all about what you've done for me. And sometimes we shift subtly. It's scary, but we can shift away from that and not even realize it. And the gospel doesn't hold the same, the same value that it once did. Colossians 2.20 says, if with Christ you died to the elements, the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to, and then it goes on and talks about all of these things. Paul talks a lot about putting to death your old self and putting on the new self. Those are two separate things. We don't carry some of the old self into the new. He's saying, he says, why do you still submit to some of these things? Because Jesus over here, he's preeminent. He's sufficient. He's, he's done it for you already. You don't have to shift. You don't have to insert. You don't have to replace God, and you don't have to be God. He already does it for you. Where in, you li in your life, where in your life have you taken the reins from God? Where in your life have you inserted something of yourself into the gospel? The Colossians dealt with that, and we deal with it now. But verse 27 says, Christ in you. It's the Christ in you that is the hope of glory. It's not the you in you. It's not the philosophy in our culture. It's not the good stuff that you can do. It's not going down to skid row. It's not any of those things that is the hope of glory. It's the Christ in you. It's what he has done. It keeps us from shifting. And here's the truth that the scripture says. He sa it says that in Christ, we're no longer aliens. In Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, we are a kingdom of priests. We're or heirs to the kingdom. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heaven. That's the gospel. Isn't it awesome? That is your king. That is your Jesus. He doesn't need us. 
He doesn't need us to be the solution for us. He's the solution for us when he's in us. Now, there is an ongoing process of us becoming more like Christ. There is an ongoing process of discipleship and and allowing the Lord to continue to peel back the layers of our lives. But the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for our salvation was once and for all. It was once and for all, and it is sufficient for us. Paul concludes this section, he concludes this passage with talking about now an encouragement to them of saying, how do, we, how do you respond to this? How do you continue to, to, to live in the gospel without making that shift? So let's take a look at the next couple verses here. We're going to back up, we'll read 22 again, and then continuing. So verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled in his body all flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But listen to verse 23. It's conditional. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, Jesus will present you to the Father holy and blameless if... You live a gospel that continues, number one, that continues in the faith. What does that mean? Continues in the faith. It's a faithfulness to the gospel. It's holding on to the gospel for what it is and holding on to that rather than trading it like we talked about. So there's a continuing in that, in that which we know. Paul is telling them to have confidence in the work of Christ for us not in that we can discover a further truth or something better or something else that's out there. He's saying, no, the gospel that you know, the gospel that has been declared, continue in that. Believe in that. Have your faith in that gospel. You can trust that Christ is enough. A lot of times where this uh, comes to the surface is during crisis, right? Crisis is where we want to see, is Christ really enough for my situation now? And the gospel answers that, saying Christ is enough. He's enough in our pain. He's enough in our suffering. He's enough in our confusion. Christ is enough in our struggle. Christ is supreme and sufficient. Second safeguard here that that Paul talks about from shifting away from the gospel is being stable. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable. Stable has to do with being founded in the truth. It has to do with your foundation. How many of you lived through the Northridge earthquake? Yeah, a lot lot of people here were so close to Northridge. Simi Valley felt it, right? I was not here yet. It happened in 1994. I came down in 1998, so I missed the whole thing. But it was a 6.7 magnitude earthquake that caused over $40 billion in damage and killed 57 people. This was a big, big earthquake. And as you, all the hands that went up, you can probably replay in your mind exactly where you were 
You can probably replay in your mind news footage of all of these buildings that literally collapsed and on themselves and were destructed. And what's interesting is when they went back and they looked at all the damage, the di- all of the different buildings that, were, uh, that, that just crumbled, they found that the one type of building that actually made it through relatively unscathed were the schools. See, back in 1994, they didn't have the same building codes that we have now for earthquakes, but the schools had to be built by federal guidelines, which were uh, a lot stricter than the state's guidelines back then. And so schools had reinforced foundations to protect the kids. And because they had reinforced foundations, they, 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 stood, they stood through a 6.7 earthquake. That was minor damage here and there. But compared to buildings that just crumbled, the schools withstood because of the solid foundation that they had. Now, I, I am a former athlete. I have to say former. <laughs> I played football and baseball and then... Uh, later on, I ran a little bit, and um, one of the truths about sports, when you play sports, is that you have to have a solid foundation. So football, for instance, if you're going to tackle somebody, what do you do? You get low and you get wide so that you have power in your, in your legs, in your stance. You have a powerful, stable foundation the same thing if you're if you're hitting a baseball you jump in the batter's box and you widen your stance and bend your legs because you need a stable foundation that's the picture that paul is painting here he's saying you need to have a solid foundation if you're going to be stable in the gospel he's saying continue in the gospel but be stable be firm a foundation that can withstand the attacks, that can withstand the pressures of life, things that are not going to shake you off of your foundation. He's talking to a group of people who had already done that. They're They're already making that shift. And he's saying, come back to being stable, founded in the truth of who Christ is. The final safeguard here to shifting from that gospel is being steadfast. He says it's being steadfast. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope, then he'll present you, he'll be able to present you holy and blameless. So what does that mean, steadfast? It's literally being resolute or firm, unwavering. It's being stubborn for the gospel. It's holding to your values at any cost. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be steadfast about this. I'll be resolute. I'm loyal to the truth. I read a story that, uh, uh, about a guy who was resolute and determined. And the story goes like this. Two guys were fishing in a boat under a bridge. And one looks up and he sees a funeral procession cross, uh, starting across the bridge. And so he stands up, takes off his cap, and he bows his head. And the procession crosses the bridge and the man puts, his, puts on his cap. He picks up his rod and reel and he continues fishing. And the other guy says, wow, that was, that was touching. I didn't know you had that in you. And the first guy responds, well, 
I guess it was the thing to do. After all, I was married to her for 40 years. <laughs> See, we can be really resolute and determined about the things that we value. And whether that is fishing or your hobby or your interest, maybe it's riding motorcycles, maybe it's whatever it is, we can be really resolute and determined in the things that we value. But my question that I echo from Paul's writing is do we value the gospel? Is that something that we value? Is that good news, that exciting, fresh like, experience with God, is that still something we value? Is that still good news to us or is it old news to us? Is it something that transforms us or is it something that is just assumed? See, see, Paul's calling them back to say, hey, Christ is enough for you. And since he's enough, since he's preeminent, since he is supreme and sufficient, your whole life needs to be steadfast and solid, founded on that gospel. It's pretty awesome when we can do that. So we get to experience Christ. It's fresh. It's new. And he begins to work through us into the lives of other people. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that uh, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Interesting that he connects being steadfast in the gospel with then laboring for the Lord. Because when the gospel is alive and fresh and you're grounded on that, the outflow of that is to tell other people. It's to do something about it. it that's the doing something about it doesn't cause, it doesn't add something to our salvation. It doesn't cause our salvation. But he's saying it's the natural outflow of it. I was in a meeting on Friday night with 30 area leaders that, if I mentioned some of them by name, you would know them. They're significant um, uh, evangelists and people in, uh, who have had amazing impact. And we were gathered to talk about the issue of foster care in Ventura County, Santa Barbara County, L.A. County. And we were, we, it was kind of a think tank meeting of saying, how can we mobilize the church to be the answer for this issue? This is an issue that in Ventura County, there's, there's a little over a thousand uh, kids who are in the foster care system. And if the church would rise up and take that on, there would never be a problem with a foster kid not having a place to go. There'd never have to be a problem with what do we do with the kids? We don't have enough homes. And this meeting was about mobilizing the church. See, see, when the gospel is fresh, when you're grounded in the gospel and you know who Christ is and you know who you are in him, then the awesome natural outflow is, this is good news. What am I going to do with it? And it changes the kingdom of God. He invites us to be part of what he's doing. It's incredible. But if the good news has become old news, if it's not transforming us, if we're not experiencing it again, fresh, if we're not living steadfast, stable, 
continuing in the faith of the gospel, it loses its potency. We come to church, we dial it in. We, can, we pat ourselves on the back that we, that we wave to our neighbor today. Like that was our spiritual outreach for the day. No, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that radically transformed your life, it needs to be heard it needs to be in our culture. It needs to be in our city. It needs to be in the foster care system. It needs to be in, in moms who are considering abortion. It needs to be all around us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ saying, you're not alone. You're not less than. You're in my kingdom because what I've already done for you. And I just think sometimes as... As I was sitting in that meeting, in fact, I was thinking, being a pastor, having already adopted and fostering right now, I thought, is the gospel old news to me? Is what we're describing exciting to me that I would give my life for this? Or is the gospel just something that is assumed in my life? That's a big question for us. In Colossians 1.27, Paul says, Christ in you, nothing else, Christ in you is the hope of glory, is the hope for our world, is the hope for us. On, uh, back in the 1800s, there was a guy named Edward Mote. And Edward Mote uh, was born to a home uh, with, well, he, he was born at a pub. And his parents, uh, they, they ran a pub and he grew up in a pub and he accepted Christ when he was 15, but he went into cabinet making. And it wasn't until he was 55 that he uh, became a Baptist minister. And he started penning all these like hundreds of different hymns. And he drew on his experience, both from his childhood growing up in a pub, but also the secular world of business. And he drew on all of these things to write hymns expressing worship and gratitude for, to Christ who saved him out of his own sin, out of his own experience, out of his own effort. And so one of the, the hymns that he wrote, it goes like this. Danny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite Danny up. We're going to sing this in a minute. This is what the lyrics say. It says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He says this phrase, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. He's talking about frames of mind. He's saying, I dare not trust in some frame of mind that I would put on. I dare not trust in my own emotional state. I dare not trust in anything of me, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. This morning, I want to I sing that. I just want to invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, guess what? That good news is available for you today. It's the best news ever. But for those of us who may have made that commitment and accepted him, is the gospel still good news that transforms us to transform this world? Or is it maybe old news 
that is assumed. We remember. We lean on what Christ did before. Jesus has something fresh for us. It's not a fresh salvation. It's not adding something to what he's done. But it's calling us back to the power of his preeminent strength and sufficiency in our life. Lord Jesus, this morning, we just surrender to you again. Lord God, we pray that the power of your gospel, of your word in our lives would be so real and fresh and new to us like the first day that we experienced that. Lord God, we pray that you'd give us your understanding of who you are and of who we are, that relationship that, that when we take that on and we're stable in that, that you then commission us into going into this world. Lord God, challenge us with a gospel that doesn't leave us with just ourselves, but commissions us on your behalf to go and represent you. Lord, what does that mean for us? How do we live that in a fresh way? We thank you, God, that it's not about us. We don't have to add in, Lord, it's by your grace. We don't even have to feel guilty where we've fallen short, where, we've, where we haven't done this, where we've, where we've shifted. We don't even have to feel guilty because your grace is sufficient. And it brings us back and it calls us in. So God, teach us to be firm, to be stable, to continue in our faith. In Jesus' name.